Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Death of Death, where we proclaim Christ's victory over sin, death, and everything else. I'm your host, Nick Stewart. Uh, how's everybody doing? Are you hanging in there? Are you desperately holding on to what your life used to be, or are you trying to figure out how to win in the future? Just thought I'd uh, start off with a disorienting question for you all. It's a good way to keep you on your toes. I'm trying to do that here. Um, Coming at you from Snowstorm Central in Oklahoma City. Apparently this is the uh, coldest winter that Oklahoma has had in decades. I I found conflicting reports of that online. But either way, it's colder than usual here apparently. So so much for global warming. Um, I love living in a place with seasons, man. Can't beat it. Today we're talking about baptism. Why not? Let's start by defining what baptism is. The uh, The London Baptist Confession says a lot about baptism, obviously. Uh, it says that it's something ordained by Jesus Christ, meaning he made this a regular practice of the church. It says it's a sign of fellowship with Christ, meaning it's something that we do to show that we're united to Christ in his work, that we're part of the body of Christ, Uh, It also says it's a sign of his death and resurrection, which is what we're going to be talking about a lot on the show today. We're kind of talking about baptism from the angle of death and resurrection. It's us identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ. When, When we go down into the water, it symbolizes death and burial. And when we come back up out of the water, it symbolizes us rising from the dead to new life. The London Baptist Confession also says it's a declaration that we're repenting of our sins and and walking with Jesus. So baptism doesn't actually unite us to Christ or save us, but it's an identification of our union with Christ and the fact that he has already saved us. Baptism is an ordinance of the church, and an ordinance means an authoritative order. So we have an authoritative order from God for Christians to be baptized. Uh, We'll talk about ordinances a little later, which is sort of a Baptist word for sacraments, and we'll get into that in a minute. But um, unfortunately for the squeamish, we can't really talk about baptism without talking about circumcision. We're going to talk about uh, what it meant, the inward realities versus the outward realities, And I'm even going to give you step-by-step directions on how to perform your own circumcision right at at home. So sharpen your flint knives, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a wild ride. Um, (laughs) That's why I'll never be successful. Comments like that. So God gave the, uh, the ordinance of circumcision to Abraham. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. Every male born into Israel was supposed to be circumcised. Now, we all know what it is, so without getting specific, it involves the cutting away of flesh. So every male born into Israel received this bloody cutting away of the flesh, this image of death to identify them as God's people. It's a symbol of death, meaning that they would, you know, they would have to die to themselves and obey God's commands, finding life as the people of God. And they were also symbolizing the fact that sins would only be paid for by a bloody sacrifice or a cutting of flesh. They were also symbolically cutting away the present sinful realities of flesh. 
So I, I definitely don't want to get all Gnostic on you and uh, have you thinking that the flesh is evil. Uh, it is in its present reality, and the flesh is used in Scripture kind of as a synonym for sin and death and the pleasures of the world. But Scripture also acknowledges that God is going to raise our flesh from the dead on the last day and raise it perfect and glorified and remake the whole earth in that way. So um, it's not as simple as, as the flesh is evil. Um, you know, we're not trying to escape our flesh for this disembodied state after death where we're totally perfect. We're looking for someone to redeem our flesh. Uh, that work has already started with our regeneration and us being saved into the kingdom of God, and it will be completed on the last day when we're raised from death in our resurrected bodies. But in the ordinance of circumcision, there is an acknowledgement of the present realities of our sin and the continuous decay of our flesh until we one day die. And in circumcision, they, they were symbolically cutting away that flesh and simultaneously identifying themselves as the people of God, the kingdom people, the, the people who follow God's commands, worship him, dwell with him, and act as a light to all other nations on the earth as God's ambassadors like Adam and Eve were supposed to be in the garden. And one day, the perfect Israelite, the only true perfect Israelite, the man who was, you know, what every Israelite was supposed to be, would undergo a violent cutting of the flesh to pay for the sins of his people, to set them apart as God's people. We'll get back to the connection between baptism and circumcision in a moment. I know you're dying to hear more about circumcision. Uh, <laughs> we, we come to the New Testament and Jesus gets baptized. He has John the Baptist baptize him and, and John says to him, shouldn't you be baptizing me? You know, the implication there is that John knew who Jesus was and knew the implications of baptizing him. Uh, you know, in the Jewish world, they were using baptism to cleanse Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So the implication there is cleansing dirty Gentiles. So when Jesus wants to get, get baptized, uh, the only perfect sinless man ever to live on the planet, uh, you know, John doesn't really understand why he would need to do that. But you have to remember that Jesus's sinless life was on our behalf. He always did what was right. He always did the will of his father and he was baptized because those things were going to be credited to his people. He told John that he was doing it to fulfill all righteousness. So he may not have needed to be baptized because he was already perfect in union with God the Father, but he did so because it was his will to do his Father's will, and he credited that work to us. And then later on in Luke twelve fifty, Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So what the heck does that mean? Well, he's referring to his crucifixion, and he describes it as a type of baptism. It's a type of cleansing, an act by which he's going to bring his people into the covenant of grace. It's a baptism of blood. So this gives us a better understanding of what Paul says about baptism in Romans 6. In Romans 6, 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. And then verse four, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we're also baptized into his resurrection. It's something that identifies us with his death and his raising to life. Peter actually says that we're partakers of his divine nature. And so by us being identified with his death when we go into the water and being identified with his life as we come up out of the water, we're we're symbolizing our already existing union with Christ and our inclusion in his work, the fact that he credits his life, death, and resurrection to us. He accomplished those things on our behalf. So it's not the baptism that unites us to Christ and his work. It's a sign of the union we've already been granted by him. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So this is the type of death that we experience when we're identified with Jesus's death. It's the death of our old self. Now, there's some disagreement as to what this means. Uh, growing up in Calvary Chapel, I was always taught that this meant that the uh, the person we were before we were saved was put to death and we became a new person after our salvation, a person who cares about the things of God, loves God, believes in and trusts in Jesus's work on the cross. But that old man, the person you were before you were saved, was still kind of in there, lurking behind every corner, trying to tempt you back into a life of sin. Now, certainly there's something to that idea. I don't want to, you know, discount it. I'm definitely not saying this is false. I just don't think it's the full story. Because we have to keep in mind what Paul was saying in chapter 5, right before the verses we just read. He was contrasting Adam and Christ and the two covenants of which they are the federal heads. Uh, when when he's showing the contrast between them, he refers to them as, as the one man. So he refers to each of them as the one man. He says things like, by one man's disobedience, people became sinners. And by the one man's obedience, people became righteous. So he's talking about Adam is the one man who was disobedient. Jesus was the one man who was obedient. People died by the one man's trespass, and people were justified by the other man's free gift. So if we extrapolate that out just a few verses later in chapter 6, we see that this reference Paul makes to the old self, which could also be translated our old man, is most likely referring to our former state under Adam's headship. The man is a reference to us before we're saved, as well as a reference to Adam. We are born under Adam's covenant in sin, and when we're regenerated and united to Christ, baptized into him, and we're born again under Jesus's covenant. We're born as slaves to sin and born again as slaves to Christ. So baptism means submersion. So the idea is that we're being submerged into Christ when we're saved, but that doesn't mean we don't have to actually get baptized. There are some circles who believe this. They believe that, uh, you know, we are united to Christ in salvation, so there's no need to perform these outward signs. And, you know, in the case of deathbed conversions or the thief on the cross, which is incredibly rare, then sure, there's, there's no real necessity to get baptized. 
you know, not being baptized doesn't keep you out of heaven, you know, to put it plainly, but it, uh, that doesn't mean we don't have to do it. It is a biblical command to be baptized just because it doesn't save us. Doesn't mean it isn't a command. It's also a means of grace. We're going to talk about what that means a little later. But when we're taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, it doesn't just refer to our state in Adam dying. It does mean that our old self that was enslaved to sin has been put to death, proverbially speaking. Sin has been robbed of its power because when we're not enslaved to sin anymore, when we're in Christ, we aren't under the same compulsion towards sin that we were before we were saved. It doesn't mean we won't sin at all. It just means that we don't have to. It's kind of crazy how simple that is, isn't it? You know, like before we were saved, we pretty much had to sin. Sin was calling the shots, but now sin doesn't rule us. When faced with temptation, we have our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to rule us, rendering sin powerless. We no longer have to give into it. So I mentioned earlier the concept of dying to self. What does that mean exactly? Well, it has to do with what we've, you know, just been talking about. Um, our sinful selves outside of Christ symbolically dying and our new selves united to Christ, raising to new life. It also has to do with sacrifice. You know, we don't live the way we want to, but the way scripture calls us to live. Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. And that doesn't always mean, you know, being a missionary to a third world country or living monastically with no money or possessions. Uh, you know, it can be as simple as following God's commands, not giving into temptation, not gratifying our own desires, all by the power of Christ and the Spirit. Gotta be honest, this is something that I struggle with um, because I grew up in a church where you know, these, these commands were basically used to abuse people, you know, uh, it was like, oh, you don't want to go on this retreat or this missions trip with us. Well, you need to pick up your cross, be a good soldier of Christ. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little cringy to, uh, to hear the words, but I have to look past my own experience of these things and, and look to what they actually mean and, uh, and heed that, you know? So if you're in a similar you know, place, know that I understand how you feel. So I know you're dying to get back to circumcision, as am I. Uh, you know, this really is sort of a circumcision podcast. You know, I've always kind of thought of, you know, this podcast lurking behind every topic that we're really talking about. We really are in a roundabout way talking about circumcision, and it's about time that we get specific. Um, <laughs> here's how circumcision corresponds to baptism. This is mostly, you know, I mean, the, the verses I'm, I'm going to read here are mostly where that idea comes from. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So the first thing we can see in the section of scripture is that we've experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ. A circumcision made without hands is what it says. This refers to a circumcision of the heart, which isn't actually a new concept to the New Testament. Um, Deuteronomy 10:16, all the way back in the Pentateuch, 
Um, a book of Moses, Deuteronomy 10.16, exhorts the Israelites to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. So even back in Deuteronomy, we see a precedent for circumcision being a spiritual act as well as a physical sign of the covenant. And Paul carries this thought into Romans 2.29 when he says that circumcision is a matter of the heart. But here in Colossians, Paul refers to the circumcision of Christ. This is the spiritual cutting away of the flesh, the dying to self that we experience at regeneration. This is why circumcision corresponds to baptism, because these are both outward signs of the inward realities I just mentioned. But we shouldn't take this truth to the extreme that the paedo-baptists take it. Um, the extreme they take it to is that, uh, you know, if baptism and circumcision correspond to one another, then we should baptize babies because babies were circumcised in the Old Covenant. But we can see in this very section of Scripture that baptism relates to circumcision of the heart, a spiritual reality that's only true of regenerate believers, which means it would be inappropriate to baptize an unregenerate person just because unregenerate people were circumcised in the Old Covenant. So if you want to know more about the discrepancies between how circumcision functioned in the Old Covenant versus how baptism functions in the New Covenant, you can go to episode 39, where I discussed the two different covenants God made with Abraham. But it will do to simply say here that circumcision was an outward sign to members of Abraham's flesh, revealing an inward reality of members of Abraham's faith. You know, I hope that makes sense. Israelites weren't members of Abraham's faith just because they were circumcised, even though circumcision did relate to the faith. You know, uh, it, it, it's the duality of Abraham's two covenants with God. And it's not enough to say that we just baptize babies because babies were circumcised in the old covenant. Back to uh, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, link baptism and circumcision when it starts in verse 11 by saying in him you were circumcised and picks up the thought at the beginning of verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism so paul is basically saying you were circumcised in christ having been buried with him in baptism so we see paul saying similar things to what he says in romans 6 about baptism identifying us with jesus's death and burial but he's basically saying the way we were circumcised was us being buried with him in baptism. Again, not that baptism is the thing that saves us, but just a sign of it. Both of these things are signs of a type of death, dying to ourselves, identification with Christ's death, a sacrifice for sins, and they also both correspond to us being raised from that death to new life. Coming up out of the water, a sign and seal of belonging to God's people, circumcision of our hearts, being regenerated in salvation. And so there's also something about baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper, that does something in us. And I want to come across like I'm completely on the side that says that these are just signs that don't actually do anything. God, you know, doesn't just arbitrarily tell us to do these things. You know, these are a means of grace. Now, as Protestants, we only have two sacraments, or ordinances, which is kind of the Baptist word for that, um, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. But there are a lot of things that fall under the category of means of grace. 
gathering on the Lord's Day, praying, singing hymns, fellowship with other believers, other things as well. These are all means of grace, but there's only two sacraments. And I'll be honest, it's one of those ineffable things in the Christian life that we can't speculate too much on without committing an error, you know. But it's safe to say, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper do something. It's not salvation, but it's kind of a spiritual strengthening and encouragement, you know, edification. A friend of mine, uh, he was a Presbyterian cat. Uh, He once told me flat out that it, it was magic. And I recoiled, obviously, because like I said earlier, I grew up in Calvary Chapel. So the word magic is just, I mean, you might as well say the F word. Uh, But after a second or two of looking at him askance, I realized, yeah, you know, that's not really that bad a a way of describing it. I think uh, you might disagree with me here, but it might actually be better to say magic than to try to describe it and detail it to death. You know, we all know that we don't mean, you know, like Harry Potter with a magic wand. We mean the kind of magic that God does when he's with his people, when he strengthens us and edifies us and sanctifies us, when he does, you know, amazing works in the souls of his people. So we don't go around like the word of faith movement, you know, trying to soak up the anointing everywhere we go. You know, we're not just slamming juice and crackers because, you know, it'll make us superheroes and getting baptized every other week. You know, it's just necessary and beneficial to our Christian lives. We're helped by it somehow. You know, it does something. I just don't know how to put it into words. I've probably been disavowed by many of you for using the word magic, but this is classic Orthodox Reformed theology stuff we're talking about, (laughs) you know, not the magic part. That was going off script a little, but uh, I just mean the doctrine of the means of grace. You know, this isn't as weird as it may sound to you if you're hearing this stuff for the first time. So, you know, might help us now to to root this in a little bit of history. I'm going to read a quote from the London Baptist Confession about this because it says, says it better than I could. Um, This is chapter 30, paragraph 7. This is the chapter on the Lord's Supper, but it corresponds to baptism in a way. So uh, here's what it says. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified, and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So we experience these outward and sensory things, but they correspond to a true and inward reality of our faith. Uh, Under the chapter um, of assurance, of grace and salvation that and uh, paragraph three it says the proper use of means can bring assurance of our salvation and that's referring to these types of things the ordinances chapter 14 paragraph one the chapter on saving faith also says this by which also and by the administration of baptism and the lord's supper prayer and other means appointed of god it is increased and strengthened so talking about, you know, saving faith, it, it mentions all these means of grace, 
uh, the means appointed of God. And it says our saving faith is increased and strengthened. So that doesn't mean that we're, you know, extra super saved when we partake in God's means of grace, but our faith is in some sense increased and strengthened when we partake in those means. So I want to talk about the means of grace more on a future episode. I just wasn't prepared to go into detail about it today. Uh, I also want to get into the Lord's Supper more because that's, you know, also partaking in Jesus' death and resurrection, just like baptism is. Uh, so definitely more on this stuff to come. I think we should probably just do Lord's Supper next week. I could just start uh, gathering some thoughts and notes and stuff on it now. So that's the show for today. This will probably end up inspiring a couple more episodes on these topics. So I'm looking forward to getting into that stuff more with you guys. Just a couple orders of business before we go. If you haven't gotten yourself a Death of Death t-shirt or a sticker yet, head over to the online store, pick some up. You can get there by going to shop.deathofdeath.net or you can go to the main website, deathofdeath.net and click shop on the menu. Uh, whichever you find easier, <laughs> it's just deathofdeath.net. You can do everything you need to do there through that website. So also, if you haven't joined the elect yet, it's only $4 a month. You get this podcast early on average, about three days early. But who cares, you might ask. Well, if that doesn't float your boat, then how about an exclusive monthly podcast that only Patreon supporters get? Does that do anything for you? What about 20% off all merchandise? Does that grease the wheels at all? By the way, I'm pretty sure all the Patreon supporters have their t-shirts at this point. But if you don't, if I've somehow made an oversight... Uh, all you have to do is go on Patreon and just drop me a message that you want a discount code, and then I will create a custom discount code just for you, and you can use it at checkout for 20% off, and then I'll deactivate the code after you use it. That's just the easiest way that I've found to do it. So if anyone out there doesn't have their shirt yet, and if you're not a patron, go sign up for, for Patreon, and then you can get that 20% discount. So. Um, we're just getting going on the series through Christopher Hitchens book, God is not great. And I'm encouraging all the patrons to read along with me as we make our way through that, that book, um, that's exclusively for the Patreon page. So if that interests you at all, now is a good time to sign up because we're only one chapter in, you can go to patreon.com slash death of death. Or like I said, you can go to the homepage deathofdeath.net and click the patreon button on the menu it's easy enough right it's less than a price of a good cup of coffee per month it helps the show gets you some pretty cool benefits on the office they would call that a win-win-win all right guys that's everything for this week i think that's all i got so i'll talk to you guys next time (laughs) 